In his commentary on this passage, Tom Wright uh, includes a story by way of illustration. And I thought it would be a helpful one for us to hear this morning. Naomi had started a small dressmaking business. She'd always been skillful with her hands. She had a good eye for colour and patterns. And now she realised she could turn these abilities to good use. Not only to make clothes for herself and her family, but to earn some money to supplement the family income. The brightly coloured fabrics of her part of Africa were popular not only in the surrounding district, but also she'd heard in foreign countries as well. Well, who could tell where it might all lead? She employed two local women to help with the actual dressmaking and a young man who would travel to the city to buy supplies and sell the finished product. Together they worked hard and had a measure of success. People liked what they did and they were reliable. Soon they had more orders than they could complete. Naomi hired two more helpers to make sure they didn't fall behind with what the customers wanted. The little group worked together happily until one day one of the younger women said, you know, I wonder if we could make other things as well as dresses, curtains, covers for chairs, things like that. The others agreed enthusiastically. They were good at dressmaking, but they were ready for a new challenge. Naomi smiled. At last. The moment had come. She went to her desk, to the drawer she'd always kept locked, and she took out a plain sealed envelope which had a date written across the seal, the day on which she had started the business. She passed the envelope to the woman who had asked the question. Open it, she said. Read it out. The young woman opened the envelope and took out a single typed sheet and she read it out. It contained a plan for a larger business that would make the wonderful fabrics into all sorts of things that people might want in their homes. I've kept it a secret from all of you for all this time, said Naomi. I know if I told you at the start, you'd say I was daydreaming. And then you'd have started daydreaming yourselves. We had to prove that we could make dresses first. But now I've shared this secret with you. This is what I planned all along. Let's do it. And the young man who did the deliveries to the city was sitting in the corner, listening to it all. And suddenly he realised that his job was about to change drastically. And forever. Tom Wright, in his commentary, follows that little story with these words Paul's picture of God in this passage is a little bit like the picture of Naomi. And Paul sees himself as we may imagine that young man in the corner saw himself. Suddenly he has been let in on an extraordinary secret. What might have looked like a strange innovation is in fact what God had had in mind all along.
The verses we read together in Ephesians 3, at first glance, are both dense and complicated. But they boil down to an incredible truth. Ever since God decided to create the universe and to form a people for himself, he had a secret plan. That plan, right from the beginning, was that God always intended to bring the world back together again. After the division caused by the fall and the introduction of human sin. God would work to bring in the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, into fellowship with himself. On equal terms with his ancient people, Israel. In short, God had always planned that in the end, he would have one big family that stretched right across the globe. As Paul wrote about this, he wanted his readers to know that the good news, the gospel that he was passing on, was that through Jesus, this great reconciliation had been accomplished. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, the the Jewish Messiah, the, the great king in David's line, had become the Lord of all the world. In our passage, this secret plan of God is referred to by one particular word. It comes four times in verse 3 and 4 and 6 and 9. The word is mystery. In English language, the word mystery normally refers to something secretive or puzzling. Something that's difficult to understand, perhaps even beyond our understanding. However, in the Greek language, which Paul was writing in, the word mystery has a rather more specific meaning. In the Greek world of the first century, a mystery was something that was once hidden from human beings, but was later revealed to them by God. It was a piece of information that only God knew, so only God could make it plain to us mere mortals. We had no access to it until God spoke. Unfortunately for us, Paul declares that God has now spoken. He has made the mystery plain, and the secret plan of God can now be known by all humankind. In verse 6, Paul spells out again what it is. Let's listen again. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Now those words are Paul is most excited. And when Paul got excited, he got a little bit wordy. Why use just one description when you can use three? And in that one verse, he makes three statements of what is now true for all people everywhere who have put their faith in Jesus. They are heirs together with God's people Israel. They are members of one body. They share together in the promises of Jesus. Let's very quickly take just each one of those one at a time. 
First of all, Gentile or non-Jewish believers in Jesus share an inheritance with God's people. Imagine you hear the news that a family living on Jura has just come into a very large, wealthy inheritance. They've been given a huge piece of land on the island. And on hearing this, you become quite envious. But the message hasn't finished yet. You are now told you're invited to become a member of that family with instant access to all the same privileges that they have. The land is also yours. Sounds too good to be true. But that was the position the Gentile Christians found themselves in in the first century. God had promised Israel that they would inherit the world. When Jesus returns and the new heavens and the new earth begin, they will reign over it with him. Well, Gentile believers now share in that inheritance too. That future is now their future. Second, Gentiles are members of one body. Here, Paul is again thinking of the church, the the body of Christ in the world, made up of all those who have put their faith in Jesus and chosen to follow him. And what Paul is saying here is, the Gentiles are not some sort of second-class citizen. They are vital limbs and organs in Christ's body on earth, just as Jewish Christians are. And third and finally, Gentile Christians share in the promises of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God made promises to Israel through Abraham. He promised them people and land and blessing. Well, through Jesus, those promises are opened out to all who believe. Believe in Christ and you enter a giant, worldwide family of people. Your promised land a place in the new heavens and the new earth. You will know blessing, the promise of forgiveness and eternal life in God's presence. So these are three incredible statements and Paul just rattles them off in one excited sentence. I know it's dense, I know it's quite difficult to get our head around, but it all boils down to the incredible truth I shared a moment ago. Ever since God created the universe, he wanted a people for himself. And the plan right from the beginning was that God would bring the world back together again. Jews and Gentiles on equal terms in one big worldwide family. Now let's just stop and pause there for a moment. As we get our head around this grand mystery of God that has been revealed, we need to realise that even Paul himself, at one stage, had not believed this to be what God wanted. In verses 7 to 9 of our reading, Paul gives a little bit of his own personal testimony to state as much. When we first meet Paul in the Bible at the beginning of Acts, he was not a believer in Jesus. He was a zealot, a radical Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a a religious fundamentalist. And Paul held his beliefs so firmly he travelled up and down the land persecuting Christians. 
He threw many in prison and he watched on as Stephen was martyred. Paul used to be a persecutor of the Gentiles, not a friend to them. And he did that not necessarily out of hate, because he believed that that was what God wanted. Knowing that, we can see the incredible transformation that has taken place in Paul's life to lead him to write the exact opposite in these verses. And in verse 7, Paul attributes that change to God and God alone. He says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Now, if you read Acts 9, you can hear how this power worked in practice. As Paul travelled along the Damascus Road heading to persecute some more Christians, he suddenly met the risen Lord Jesus. And in the blinding light of that moment, Paul realises he's got everything wrong. Jesus really is God's son. He really is the Messiah. He really had gone to the cross to forgive us our sins. He really had conquered the grave. He's alive. He's standing there in front of him. And as Paul grovels in the dust, he knows that Jesus is Lord. Not just Lord of the Jews, but Lord of all. Lord of all the world. And wonderfully for Paul in that moment, God didn't smite him down or, or punish him for the way that he treated the Christians. Perhaps he knew that Paul had always been trying to do that out of some misguided loyalty to him. Instead, God gave Paul a new calling to live his life by. He was to be an apostle, a sent one to the Gentiles. He was to go to them and tell them about this Jesus that he'd met on the Damascus Road. He was to go and say what God's mystery had now been revealed. He was to go and share it with everyone that he met. That from the beginning of time, God was working to make one family. Trust in him, you're included in it. Truly, if you're in any doubt as to the literal, historical reality of the resurrection, have a look at Paul's life. Other than meeting Jesus face to face, what else could have turned him round from a persecutor of the Gentiles to their greatest friend? That transformation is inexplicable other than him meeting Jesus on a Damascus road. He really rose again. And now that Paul has this grip on what God is really trying to do, he's no longer putting Gentiles in jail. He is in jail for his ministry to them. Because he's gone round the whole of the Mediterranean trying to help them and preach to them and guide them. He is now in jail. So great is his commitment to God's plan on earth. I don't know what you've made of this sermon so far. I don't know how well I'm getting the message across. But I hope that we can see as we sit here listening to this today that we are direct beneficiaries of this. For we are Gentiles. We are non-Jews who have come to believe in the Jewish Messiah. 
God doesn't hold our background against us. He celebrates it. We are beneficiaries of this plan that has been revealed. As we worship here today, thousands of miles from Israel, thousands of miles from Calvary, where Jesus died on the cross, we benefit from it. We are included in God's family. We will inherit the new heavens and the new earth and a wonderful new body to live in. We are part of Christ's body here on earth today. All the promises of scripture that God will never leave us, never forsake us, they're made to us. And what Paul wrote to encourage those new Christians in Ephesus 2,000 years ago applies directly to us. And it should encourage us. But I guess most of us already assumed those things. And I guess because none of us live in a context where there's open animosity between Jewish and Gentile Christians, we may still be struggling to see the practical relevance of this passage for our lives today. Well, hold on a minute, because Paul hasn't quite finished yet. Now that he's explained this great mystery of God, he has an incredible statement to make. He has a great call to place on the lives of God's people everywhere. It's in verses 10 and 11. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ. Here it is, the great calling on our lives today. The church, made up as it is of Jew and Gentile together, is now to be a beacon of wisdom to the world. Not just any old wisdom, but God's wisdom. The church is to demonstrate to the world what it is that God wants and what it is that God is working on. The church is to demonstrate to the world the best way for human beings to live. Not just from the teaching from the pulpit, but the way that we exist as family. The church is made up of men and women and children from every race and every colour, every social, cultural background, and it brings them all together in worship of God. And this incredible family is what the world needs to see. Paul says that non-Christians need to see it. Paul says that political rulers need to see it. Paul says that powerful authorities, both earthly and spiritual, need to see it. Think about it for a moment. We live in a world where people are constantly being broken down into their own little groups. We see that in the rise of nationalist politics across Europe and America and the Far East. We see that online, where people gather in their own little echo chambers. They only listen, they only engage to people who share the same views as they do. Everybody else is just written off. 
We live in a world of, of tribes and gangs and little cliques. And the powers that be in our world are constantly trying to create this flat, uniform, almost boring groups of people. And they, they marginalise those who are different and they persecute those who don't fit in. In some parts of the world, they even kill them. And God is horrified by that. It breaks his heart because every human being is made by him, is loved by him. And so in this incredibly divisive world, the church is to be the sign that that's not how God works. That's not what God wants. And one day that behaviour will come to an end. Because God is committed to the project of bringing everybody together. And the church is to be the beacon of wisdom that shines this out to the world. That there is a better way to live than in argument and division. And it's in unity with one another. And we're to demonstrate that here on Isla. So we are to be a church where young and old are equally valued and enjoy being together. Think about it. Where else in society do young and old meet and mix together? Nowhere. We are to be a church where male and female are equally valued. We are to be a church where Scottish people and English people and people of any other nationality under the sun are welcome. We are to be a church where SNP voters and Conservative voters and Labour voters and Lib Dem voters can share in open conversation about what they think and know they'll be respected and loved regardless. We are to be a church where you can be an academic or you can have very little education at all and yet you'll still be seen to have something important to contribute to the conversation. We can be a church that welcomes people whether they like modern worship music or whether they like traditional worship music. We can be a church that strives to form good relationships with all other Christians on Isla. This is how we are a beacon of wisdom. This is how we show that God's great plan is to bring everyone together in one family of people. And we will be that beacon of wisdom, not just by what we teach from the pulpit, but by how we live. We are to be a family here in full view of our very divided world. Let's pray together.